Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and along with my brother Rick DeYoung, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, Rick, today, it, as we look at events that are happening around the world, sometimes you got to ask the question, do we still believe that God is in control? That's true, Jimmy. It certainly does seem like events are spinning out of control, but we know that there is an overall plan. You're absolutely right, Rick. The concept of the control of God over everything is called the sovereignty of God. Nothing gives us strength and confidence like an understanding of the sovereignty of God in our lives. In fact, I'm reminded in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and I have purposed, so it shall stand. Rick, and as we examine these events this week, we can see how God is sovereign. We're going to take a look today as we talk to our broadcast partners. As a matter of fact, I like how it all comes together always when we talk to Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Colonel Bob McGinnis, and then we're going to talk to Dr. Don DeYoung, who is talking about creation and into the future, the millennial kingdom. And of course, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, will continue the Alpha and Omega series that he has started. So let's get started right away with our program today. Ken Timmerman is with us. Thank you for joining us today, Ken. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we're going to start today with President Biden in Poland. Can you give us an update on why he's there and the status of the crisis in Ukraine right now? Well, sure. This was a a, a trip that uh, he had to put together because America has not been leading and everybody in Europe and in Russia and in Ukraine can see that. Uh, Zelensky has been going, making his tour of the world parliaments over the past week, speaking directly to the uh, Knesset in Israel, speaking to parliaments uh, across Europe, as well as to Congress here in the United States. And Joe Biden has not been really taking charge of this crisis. He has not been leading the West. He has not answered Zelensky's call for him to become the leader of the world. So he had to go to Europe to meet with uh, the EU and to go to Poland as well, which is today on the front lines between NATO and Russian aggression. So this was a necessary trip. It was a damage control trip, in my view. And uh, Biden did not come out of this with a major victory. In fact, um, while he claimed that the Europeans were completely united behind the United States, there is still this tremendous divide between Europe and the U.S. over Russian natural gas. Uh, The Germans have agreed to buy uh, more gas from Qatar, but not until next year. But for the next year, uh, Germany is going to continue to buy natural gas from Russia, which means they will be essentially funding Russia's war in Ukraine. So this was not the unity summit that Biden claimed it was. Uh, It was uh, really just a kabuki dance for the cameras. Now, worst of all, in my view, was Biden's uh, pathetic press conference where he claimed that sanctions were never expected to deter Russia from going into Ukraine. And anybody who thought such a thing was foolish. Well, I guess that includes his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who said sanctions were put in place uh, to deter Russia from going into Ukraine. From 
uh, I guess he also included Jen Psaki, his own spokesperson, who said the same thing. And John Kirby at the Pentagon, who said the same thing. So Biden is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And unfortunately, he just makes this country appear foolish when he does so. I assume now that all attention is going to be focused on a potential ceasefire. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on the fact that I heard that a top Zelensky aide says that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Israel could host the talks and praises uh, Israeli intel cooperation in this matter. Yes, uh, this is Andre Yermak, who's actually Zelensky's uh, chief of staff, and he's appeared several times with him on Western television interviews. Uh, he, he was also doing a bit of damage control after Zelensky's disastrous speech to the Knesset, uh, where he continuously uh, compared Ukraine's fate today at the hands of the Russians to the fate of the Jewish people during the Holocaust. That did not sit very well with Israeli leaders or or Jews in general around the world. So uh, Yermak here is really doing some damage control to uh, make Israel understand that uh, uh, Zelensky was under pressure and uh, he should be forgiven for having made that kind of really awful and unforgivable uh, comparison. So he praised the intelligence cooperation. Uh, he said, you know, thank you to Israel. Uh, we, we appreciate what you're, we are getting from you, and we hope that you will be able to mediate between us and Putin. Naftali Bennett has already been to Moscow once. Zelensky was criticizing him when he spoke at the Knesset for this. He says, you can't negotiate between good and evil. Uh, you can maybe mediate, but you can't really really negotiate between good and evil. You've got to choose sides. Uh, and that was a dig at, at Bennett for going to Russia. So now you have uh, Yermak doing damage control, walking that back and saying, no, no, we would be very happy to have uh, Israeli mediation. Ken, I'd like to move away from the crisis in Ukraine right now and look at some other things taking place in the world. And I'm really interested to get your thoughts. I know you've written extensively about Iran and the situation that's there with their government and their motivations and intentions in the world. And now reports are coming out that as part of this nuclear deal, we are thinking about removing Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the foreign terrorist organization list. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Words fail me for just how dumb this is. Uh, I, you know, you, you've got these people uh, like Rob Malley sitting in uh, Vienna and in Geneva negotiating through the Russians with Iran. Uh, he's also back channeling with Iranian intelligence through a guy named Ali Vaez uh, at the crisis uh, network where he used to, the international crisis group that he used to chair. This is so bizarre, uh, the logic of a new Iran deal that would empower the mullahs, give them tens of billions of dollars in fresh cash and a clear pathway to nuclear weapons, uh, a clear pathway to nuclear weapons. And as former uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu told Fox News this week, it would give them nuclear weapons and ICBMs at the same time. I mean, how insane is this type of negotiation. So I guess when the negotiation itself is insane, removing the IRGC from the terrorism list, it's just par for the course. Well, that's certainly something we want to keep an eye on. And I tend to agree with you, Ken. As usual, it does seem insane. Well, finally, we seem to jump from hot spot to hot spot in the Middle East. 
One of the hotspots in previous years that we haven't heard from much lately is Libya. It uh, looks like Libya is potentially, uh, their their elections aren't about to happen, so it, it might become a hotspot again soon. What do you know about that situation? Well, it could indeed. And uh, the they, they missed a deadline in December to hold elections. And so now you have, again, these two rival governments, one in Benghazi, uh, in, in the east, eastern part of the country, and the other one in uh, uh, in Tripoli, and you have the Turks who are supporting the government in Tripoli, and they're supporting it militarily and politically. The Turks are now saying, "All right, look, you've got to kind of hold off. We'll we'll get new elections, a new government, uh, reopen the airspace, which has been closed for two weeks, and let's see if we can keep things under control. Let's not let this spin out of uh, spin out of hand." But they're chopping at the bit there to go after Haftar. Because uh, this past week, he just lost uh, about 1,400 mercenaries from Russia who had been helping him. These were people uh, employed by the Wagner Group. And things are so bad in Ukraine that Putin is pulling them out of Libya to bring them into Ukraine to fight there on the ground. So Haftar could be facing new weakness, and that could present an opportunity for that um, so-called national unity government, which is uh, not national and not united, that's sitting in Tripoli and backed by Turkey. It's amazing how all these things are interrelated, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yes, what it's uh, the old butterfly syndrome, yeah. right? A butterfly dies in Thailand, and and the bridge collapses in New York. Mm-hmm. Well, one last question, Ken, and it's interesting that we're looking at Libya now. And the whole world and all of our news is focused on Ukraine right now, and it's kind of pushed the Iran deal to the side. But we are paying attention to it. One last question: Is there any other area that maybe we're not paying attention to now, but with our focus on Ukraine? Maybe we should be paying attention because it's going to be tomorrow's news. Well, Taiwan, absolutely Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese want it. Uh, they want it sooner than later, uh, and they are preparing for it. Now, the Taiwanese are preparing as well to repulse a Chinese invasion. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in the next couple of months because the big story inside China is preparing for the party congress that happens every five years, and President Xi is determined to get himself basically elected president for life. Uh, So he's going to focus on that right now. He does not want a war with Taiwan. But that is the next big thing that will happen towards the end of this year, next year. Keep your eye on that space as well. Do you think President Putin is providing a roadmap for how they might go about this? Well, I think Putin is providing a roadmap of how not to go about it. (laughs) (laughs) He's shown pretty clearly uh, all of the mistakes that you can make, starting with uh, not wiping out the air defenses uh, at the early days of the war. I mean, we showed that in both of our campaigns in Iraq. That is the very first thing that a modern military does. And for reasons which are completely beyond me at this point, Putin didn't do that going into Ukraine. Uh, the other thing that's beyond me is that we don't know the name of the general who's in charge of this uh, this war plan. Putin has never named his General Schwarzkopf or his, uh, you know, his General Petraeus. We don't know the name of the Russian general in charge of the war. We know that five generals have been killed in the battlefield, which is pretty extraordinary, uh, because Russia is a command-controlled army. Everything is done centrally uh, by the army, so they have to put the generals up there on the front lines. The Russian military has made every mistake in the book in this campaign, and if she is watching, 
he's going to be learning a few lessons. Well, Ken, as usual, your insight was excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you, Rick. God bless. Excellent interview, Rick. We've got to take a break. When we come back, our Middle East News update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Since 2018, Turkey has forced nearly 200 Protestant clergy and their families to leave the country. Intelligence officials claim they pose a security risk but don't say how. Sonar Tufan works with the Association of Protestant Churches in Turkey. He says this pattern has developed due to distrust and hatred of Christians in Turkey. However, he's hoping to plant more churches with the help of Asian access. Ask God to protect believers in Turkey. And China and Hong Kong are seeing the largest spike of COVID cases since 2019, despite having severe lockdown and prevention policies. Earlier this week, China locked down an industrial city of 9 million after 47 new cases were reported. Frustration abounds on Chinese social media platforms as government censors failed to keep up. If ever the Chinese people needed a reason to hope, it's now. Pray the Bibles and Christian materials sent to China from Mission Cry can be distributed quickly to believers. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the portion of the program that we focus on Israel, what's happening in the state of Israel, in the land of Israel with the Jewish people. One of the reasons that we do that, and we've always said that we understand that God has a program for the Jewish people. He's not finished with them yet. And Rick has a journalist friend of ours, David Dolan to talk about the Middle East News Update. Longtime journalist in Israel and faithful contributor to this program. David, thank you for joining us today. I'm always glad to be with you, Rick. God bless. Well, the first thing I'd like to talk about, Dave, is the Ukrainian crisis and how it is being seen or how it is affecting Israel. There's a story that came out in the news that says that Russia warns Israel not to take a pro-Ukraine position. Yeah, that was reported by the Channel 12 News Network in Israel, Rick, that uh, a meeting took place this week between Mickey Levy, who's the Knesset speaker in Israel from Foreign Minister Lapid's Yeshatid, or There's a Future Party. He met with the Russian ambassador uh, during the week, and the message was reportedly, don't side with Ukraine. We're watching this real closely. We've seen the things you've done. We think you have a, quote, unbalanced position on Ukraine, according to the news report. And they were very upset. The ambassador said that the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, invited Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to speak to the Knesset. That happened last 
Sunday via, via Zoom. Of course, Israel, as we've said before, has sent a field hospital that was opened this week with some Israeli officials uh, near Lviv in western Ukraine, over 100 Israeli volunteers there. So they don't like any of that, the Russians. And they said, look, stay neutral, stay out of this, don't get involved. But of course, Israel has formally condemned Russia's invasion and has uh, called upon it to stop. But meanwhile, Prime Minister Bennett remains the main mediator, it seems, between Russia and uh, Zelensky, between Putin and Zelensky, having spoken again this week several times to both leaders. And uh, he did say uh, at one point that he sees some chance of some success for these talks. So, um, you know, Israel's playing a, a vital role in that way uh, while being condemned by the Russians. It certainly seems like Israel, because of their different relationships, both with Russia and Ukraine, the way they're acting as a mediator, the fact that they have Russia as an ally and even in Syria, that their whole position is pretty complicated, isn't it? It's extremely delicate, to say the least. Uh, we have, you know, 160, 170,000 rockets pointing at Israel from Lebanon, controlled by Hezbollah, controlled by Iran, which is close to Russia. So, you know, we have a lot of military stuff right on the ground there that could go poof at any second, really. And uh, it's very, very difficult. And Putin is acting very, very uh, terribly. And the Israelis understand that and realize that. But they can only say so much publicly about that. It'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall when Bennett is talking privately uh, with Putin. But um, uh, at least there are some talks going on. But meanwhile, of course, the fighting in Ukraine is going on as well. And uh, one month now. Prime Minister Bennett has been very busy. We move away from his negotiations and his dealings with Russia and Ukraine, and we look at uh, he's been to Egypt for a trilateral summit. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, that was supposed to be a secret meeting, actually, sponsored by Egypt, al-Sisi, President al-Sisi, down at the beautiful Sharm el-Sheikh resort area in the south of the Sinai. I've been there. I'm sure you have, too. And um, Bennett met, and also the Crown Prince from the United Arab Emirates was there. So they were discussing joint issues of security. They said they discussed oil and gas production in the area and how that can be handled. Of course, Israel supplies Egypt with a lot of natural gas every day through pipelines in the northern Sinai. And of course, they discussed Ukraine and other regional issues. Very interesting. Uh, Israel and Egypt have had a peace agreement since the Camp David Accords with Sadat and Begin. And now you look at this, they have not necessarily been normalized, but Israel's natural gas has created some areas or avenues for diplomacy and for relations, hasn't it? Oh, it definitely has. Uh, remarkably so, in fact. And uh, that's not only to the Arab world, but in Europe, uh, relations used to be quite strained with Greece. After this gas was discovered and Greece wanted some of it, those improved. And I could talk about that for a while. So while Iran, as I said last week, wants to be the guardian of the Palestinians and wants to be, you know, more Catholic than the Pope in that way, Israel does have relations with several Arab countries. And this is just another sign, the summit, that uh, those uh, agreements are important 
and those relationships are important. And of course, business activity, not only with Egypt, but with the UAE has just exploded in the past few months. So that's uh, another good thing for Israel's economy and for the Arab countries that are participating as well. Well, I'd like to move on to a different subject. And last week we spoke with Israel Madad, and he's uh, he's our man in Israel. He's an Israeli political pundit, basically. And we talked about the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Thomas Nides. Uh, I got his perspective as an Israeli citizen. I'd like to get your perspective on the way he has presented himself uh, and the way he is representing the United States in Israel right now. Well, Rick, we have never seen such a sea change in U.S. ambassadors to Israel as we've seen over the past two years. We had in the previous ambassador, David Friedman, appointed by Donald Trump, the most pro-Israel ambassador Israel's ever had. He was Jewish. He was uh, observant. He was very much pushing for the embassy to be moved to Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have a Democratic Party left-winger, Thomas Nides, who um, has been very controversial, especially over the past couple weeks. He gave a webinar, a Zoom um, talk to the Americans for Peace Now group. Now, that's a very left-wing Israeli-based group, but they have a U.S. wing. And he said, I'll just quote a few things. He said, in building the settlements, Israel is, quote, doing stupid things. He then went on to say it's infuriating that Israel is expanding some uh, building a few thousand apartments essentially in Judea and Samaria for uh, further Jewish inhabitation next to Male Adumim in particular. Well, you know, Rick, there are 800,000 Jews that live between East Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria that live in both areas. So this is not a small group of people that he's denigrating quite strongly. He earlier refused to go into the tunnels uh, underneath the Western Wall because they're in occupied uh, East Jerusalem. So the man is very far to the left and uh, almost sounds anti-Israel. And in his talk to Peace Now, some Israeli commentators said afterwards, he's the Palestinian ambassador. He's not the American ambassador to Israel. He's the American ambassador to the PA, or so he's acting, so he's uh, speaking like. So it's not a good situation, just another sea change in the Middle East. We had the leaders of Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE refused to take calls from the White House earlier in the week over energy policy because they're so upset with Joe Biden and his deal with Iran that seems to be pending. So um, Biden is definitely changing the uh, modus operandi of Donald Trump, where Israel was front and center, and now it's once again in the back of the line, it seems. Well, those are very serious topics that we're talking about, and I guess that would lead me to my final question. And uh, there has been reports that any day now we may see a deal with Iran, and you've just mentioned it, how dangerous it is, and how this same administration and their attitude towards Israel is the administration that is negotiating the restarting of the, the doomed Iran nuclear deal that was there. Could you just give us any update, if there is any update, on what's taking place in those negotiations and what we might expect to see this week? Well, Rick, we haven't been told the details yet of it, but uh, a White House official said uh, on the plane to Europe for the NATO summit, told reporters that um, there are still some outstanding issues that need to be resolved, but he was hopeful they could be resolved. 
So we're still looking for this to possibly be re-signed. Once again, Russia's at the center of it. Russia would be exempt from all sanctions connected to Iran if this deal is re-signed. It just seems absurd and crazy to the Israelis. It will certainly free Iran to do a lot more dangerous things. That much we know. And in the meantime, they've violently violated the previous accord, uh, going way beyond what its provisions were. And even though the U.S. pulled out of it, nobody else did. And they were supposed to continue on with that former treaty in, in essence, but they reverted back to their old ways and the Israelis are just distressed about it. Again, Iranian leaders all the time saying they will ultimately destroy Israel. So the Israelis have heard that once before from Adolf Hitler, that he would kill the Jews and look what he did. So they've got to take this seriously. Well, thank you, David, for your taking your time and uh, using your knowledge and your insight into this situation to educate our listeners. Uh, so many serious issues going on here, and our own administration, our own country is at the heart of these, and we really need to hold them to account and make sure we are making good decisions going forward. Well, I'm always glad to do it, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today. When we come back, we're going to have Colonel Bob McGinnis with us. You won't want to miss that. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today. Today Radio. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee. Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, the stories that we pick out have prophetic significance. There's no prophecies left to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church takes place. What we're watching are events that are setting up the stage for prophecies to be fulfilled in the tribulation period. That's why we keep our eyes on the Jewish people. That's why we understand that God has made promises to the Jewish people for covenants, really. The Abrahamic, Genesis chapter 13, 15, and 17. The land covenant, Deuteronomy 29. And uh, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Plus, we've also got the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. But we uh, go to Colonel Bob McGinnis because he keeps our eyes on the other events of the world, and he helps us to understand what's taking place. Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis is with us again today. He's a frequent contributor on our program. He's a retired U.S. Army officer. He's an experienced military analyst with on-the-ground experience inside Russia and the Ukraine, and author of a number of books. The latest addresses the threat between Russia and China, and this book is called Give Me Liberty, Not Marxism. A very accomplished author and contributor. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Glad to be with you, Rick. 
Well, we want to start off by talking about an article that you recently contributed to Fox News, talking about the ways that uh, Ukraine could possibly win the war. Can you talk about that? Well, yes. The Ukraine, Ukrainian army and the civilian population, of course, are defending home turf, uh, and they're facing a Russian uh, opposition that certainly is strong, but it's demonstrating uh, considerable weakness. It's clear to me that the campaign plan that Putin put together uh, fell apart upon first contact. Uh, they made some assumptions, uh, such as they totally underestimated uh, the willingness of the Ukrainians to fight. And then when the soldiers from Russia uh, did assault, invade into Ukraine, we found that uh, at every level, at the tactical, operational, and strategic level, they really failed dismally. They were poorly trained. Uh, they essentially have no air-to-ground capability. Any aircraft they have, they're dropping bombs, but they're dropping them on large targets, not precise targets. Their logistics is you know, really in the toilet. And in terms of they can't keep enough fuel forward, they aren't feeding their soldiers, and they're having a terrible time with uh, effects of the cold weather. So when you look at all of this, it's no wonder that reports of upward to 15,000 Russians have been killed in this operation thus far, and another at least you know, 16 to 20,000 have been wounded. And that's significant. And, of course, the Pentagon's reporting that 90% of the original uh, combat power uh, continues to exist. So the erosion of 10% of the a massive combat capability of the Russians by the Ukrainians is is speaking you know, volumes for for what's going on. What's what's happening on the ground now, of course, is that the Russians, uh, having depleted their resources and trying to preserve uh, their personnel, have begun to dig in around uh, many of the cities, especially Kiev, uh, and of course. Uh, they're beginning to uh, demonstrate a, a lack of morale. Now, can the Ukrainians win? I think there is uh, a chance, like a, a David and Goliath scenario, that the, the Ukrainians can, in fact, win. Uh, it, it seems to me that, you know, at this point, uh, s subject to further reinforcements, which are likely to come from Russia, and the use of weapons of mass destruction, that in all probability... There will be some sort of uh, compromise, uh, some sort of uh, ceasefire agreement in the not-too-distant future. Certainly, I think we're hopeful for that. Uh, but I would say the rosiest scenario is that uh, the forces you know, basically come to a, uh, an agreement that you know, there's no sense in continuing. Now, there may be uh, some requirement by Putin and the Russians for uh, declaring sovereignty for the eastern provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, and of course, you know, surrendering uh, Manipal, uh, which provides a land corridor you know, to Crimea, which was seized and annexed in 2014 by the Russians. So that may be what uh, Putin's in game is. But, you know, it would leave in place the vast majority of uh, Ukraine. And of course, you know, there would probably be some argument as to, you know, guarantees of neutrality in the future, guarantees of no NATO membership, and a host of other issues. But what is clear to me is that the landscape 
of Eastern Europe has uh, changed for the foreseeable future. Uh, certainly as NATO uh, moves active forces close to the border in Poland, Romania, the Baltics, and the tension is very high. It's very similar, uh, which is something I've predicted for some time, that we've returned to a Cold War status, and that will likely continue for some time. In this rosiest possible scenario, it kind of sounds like a defeat for Putin. Would that be something that he could survive? Would he be uh, in political jeopardy if that were to happen? Well, I think that you know there are a lot of issues that are at stake. Certainly Putin is president for life as he chooses, but he is experiencing significant domestic turbulence. Now, of course, uh, he's been arresting people left and right, putting them in jail forever, likely, uh, which you know, is indicative of uh, the authoritarian that he is. Uh, he's e- even elect or arrested uh, one of his uh, intelligence officials on his personal staff uh, because of what's going on. He has to find some scapegoats. He has to find an, an outcome that he can live with. Now, his economy is in the, in the toilet, uh, thanks to a lot of the outside sanctions. His military uh, is not totally spent, but certainly he spent a lot, and it's going to be hard for him to sustain. Um, and he's throwing everything that he can to include the kitchen sink and the hypersonic uh, missile that he tested against a western Ukrainian city not long ago. So all of these factors are significant. They're weighing heavy on him. Uh, he will seek to find an outcome that uh, he can live with. And of course, it's up to the, the Russian people whether or not they keep the guy in office. Well, this may be putting the cart before the horse, and I know this is pure speculation, but if he were to somehow be removed from office, that would create a vacuum. In your opinion, who would fill that vacuum? Where would the leadership of Russia go? Well, there there are always people standing in line to take positions of authority and power like that. Uh, You know, I'm not going to speculate as to a name. You know, he has his opponents uh, some of which uh, were totally different than him. Uh, the Russian people, of course, are very upset by the, the plummeting ruble, uh, by their stock market being in the tank, uh, by you know just their standard of living, thanks to the exodus of all these Western firms, has really gone very, very low, worse perhaps since uh, the end of the Cold War. So you have a host of issues. Don't know who's going to... if. If he does set aside, you know, who will take him? Or perhaps there's a Brutus out there that would, you know, would do that and remove him and then take the reins himself or herself. Don't know. Well, moving away from Russia specifically, and we just look at this whole situation and and what's taking place in Russia and Ukraine and the fact that America could not prevent it. I know in years past, of the might, the power of America, sometimes we could prevent situations like this without even doing anything just by our sheer power and influence that we wielded in the world. It doesn't seem like that's the case anymore, is it? No, not really. Uh, unfortunately, I think it has a lot to do with the, the last election. Mr. Biden, who, of course, came in with all sorts of promises and unity messages, has totally failed to deliver. Uh, he, of course, he, the debacle that he created uh, by his own poor decisions in Afghanistan back in August of this past year, 
And then, of course, leading up to this situation, uh, the calculation was made by Putin that uh, Biden was a pushover and that as a result, uh, he could take advantage of decades of resistance to go ahead and do uh, what the Russian leader has long wanted to do, and that is people weren't listening to him. They were advancing NATO to the east, and they were putting long-range uh, ballistic missiles closer to his territory, and he objected to that. And and so this is his way of responding, you know, taking over Ukraine. And, and it's possible you know, if he feels the gumption, he'll continue uh, to march to the West. I'm not sure that he will at this point, but, you know, that's not totally out of the question. Well, you've talked about it on this program in the past that Russia, obviously they're a nuclear power and obviously they're able to do what they're doing now in Ukraine, but they are not the powerful enemy that the Soviet Union once was. But there is uh, another country with global hegemony aspirations, and that's China. Uh, what are they going to take from this kind of signal and this kind of leadership or lack of leadership in America? You know, President Xi in China, of course, is watching carefully. Now, keep in mind, you know, that Putin and Xi met on the 4th of February there in Beijing, right at the beginning of the Olympics. And, you know, they signed a 5,400-word joint statement that basically pledged alliance uh, going forward between the two. Now, up to that point, they had been collaborating, cooperating on many, many fronts, economic, uh, certainly military uh, geopolitical and the like. Uh, however, uh, I would argue that uh, they are much closer as a re direct result of what even we've seen here in Ukraine. Now, the Chinese are not condemning uh, Putin's attack into Ukraine. In fact, they're they're blaming that attack on uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, because we you know, we set up the circumstances that led uh, Putin out of necessity, allegedly, to do what he's done. Uh, but the Chinese are watching closely. Uh, the Chinese are the the world's uh, great power next to the U.S. Uh, they are you know, measuring whether or not uh, the response to Ukraine is something that they need to be worried about when they try to seize Taiwan, which inevitably they will. Now, they may do it through diplomatic means, uh, much as they've taken over Hong Kong, uh, or they could always revert to kinetic uh, military power uh, to seize that island nation. The big difference, of course, is that it is an island surrounded by ocean, unlike Ukraine, which is surrounded by other countries and adjacent to a NATO ally. Uh, so th there are significant differences, but I have no doubt, uh, given what President Xi has said uh, for a long time, that his primary goal is bringing Taiwan back into the fold, something that hasn't been you know, since uh, the early part of the last century. At the end of uh, the 15th dynasty, the Qing dynasty, and as they stood up, the Republic of China. Uh, so there are a host of issues uh, taking place here, but uh, keep your eyes on China. Uh, Russia may be on the news today, but China's the big dog out there to watch. Well, that would be my final question for you. As we go forward, and we have been keeping an eye on Russia, and we have been keeping an eye on China, and you've been on this program and talked about the things that we need to worry about, the threats that could possibly come from those areas. Is there another area maybe that we're not looking at right now or that is not as much in the news that we need to be keeping our eye on right now? Well, certainly, uh, you know, the things that I write about uh, are 
some you know, as op-eds are in the news today. But you know, my last book, "Give Me Liberty, Not Marxism," of course, is the uh, the Marxist agenda. You know, here in the United States, uh, and of course, there's a chapter in there about what China's influence on our domestic. Um, Pro, you know, programs and power centers and, and the like. Uh, it, it is uh, pointing a finger. My, I'll have a new book later this year, later this summer, uh, on China alone, uh, because most people have never studied China in, in school. Uh, very few speak Mandarin Chinese or Cantonese. Uh, very few really understand the political dynamics inside the. Uh, Chinese Communist Party, much less uh, the premier leader, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. So, you know, when you consider all that and you consider that they have soon the, the world's leading economy, certainly the, the largest military in terms of numbers, but also edging its way toward uh, parity with the United States, and of course it's expansive geopolitical reach around the world, even in our hemisphere in a major way, all of these factors contribute to the fact that you know, a new world is dawning and that China is uh, a country that we can no longer ignore in any, any way. Yet it is very hegemonic, has every intention of taking over the, new, the world and changing the world to its liking. So we need to be very attentive to that. Well, Colonel Bob McGinnis, we thank you so much for being on our program. You provide excellent insight and your wealth of knowledge for our listeners. We will continue. We look forward to seeing your new book, and we will continue to call on you from time to time to inform our listeners on these important subjects. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. Well, Colonel Bob McGinnis, you know, when we talk to him, he gives us so much clarity and we do that because we want to understand what is taking place in the world, uh, why it's happening, why the world is doing what it is. And when we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word later on in the program, when we take a look at the book, we'll tie all this in together. Well, a good friend of ours uh, who's been on the program many times, if you're a longtime listener, you know Dr. Don DeYoung. You know that he is a wealth of information he is a creation physicist. He's a scientist. Uh, he takes many trips. Uh, I have, I, I'm pleading with him to let me go with him on the Rio Grande. Well, sure, uh, Jimmy, we can uh, run the river. I can't believe that uh, you do that. That is awesome. I know that we the next trip that you have that you're putting together, I've asked if we could promote it on our programs because I know a lot of other people, too, would love not only to do this, to enjoy God's creation, but to understand and to, to sit under somebody like you. It's like, you know, when we go to Israel and we teach, you know, it's a great classroom to be out there in nature. Well, it sure is. Yeah. Don, today, coming out of Colonel McGinnis, and again, the first part of our program we're talking about, I just wanted to ask you, any thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine and in our world today? Well, Jimmy, I think we're all... Uh interested in the news and it's uh painful to watch to see what's happening mm. uh certainly uh prayer is needed we do have the assurance that god puts in leaders and takes them out mm -hmm. and we just got to pray for wisdom on all sides for uh, those that are in power in our world today wow isn't that the truth and you're referring to revelation 17 and uh you know uh god using leaders to accomplish his will uh, I remind people all that all the time in prophecy conferences that the administration, the people, the governments that are in place is what God wants. And he 
has a plan for the future. And today, as we always do, when I when I see these articles, now, Dr. DeYoung, I am not anti-saving the earth. I am not this. But when I see articles that talks about heat waves at both uh, Earth's poles and how alarming it is to climate scientists. Now, help us as we think. And again, you know, I, I know that this is probably an attack on creation. I know that this is attack on, you know, this is something to get us distracted. Help us to figure out, first of all, what is happening uh, with the the warming up on the poles? Uh, yes, this was uh, interesting news of uh, unusual warm temperatures, both in the north and the Arctic, and also in the south and the Antarctic. Now, it's not that it was uh, uh, thawing. It's still, uh, it's still cold freezing, <laughs> yeah. but so- somewhat above normal. Now, Jimmy, I was just checking this week uh, the temperature, and you can find those in the polar areas. Mm. And uh, even this week at the uh, in the Arctic, it's spring, and the temperature's back down to about minus 30 Fahrenheit. Okay. And at the uh, South Pole, of course, it's just fall coming on, and uh, there the temperature uh, this week was minus 80 Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. So things have already returned to normal. It seemed like there was a, a, a temporary surge of temperature, um, just um, kind of a weather phenomena. And as we know, the weather does change from uh, day to day. And so that kind of made the news, but it's not a, a world-changing event. You know, climate is a, a several decades to, to kick in that kind of thing, whereas the weather changes from day to day. Mm-hmm. And that appears to be what had happened in the polar areas. Do you think, you know, when the scientists are alarmed by this, is it something that we should be alarmed by? Well, I think a measure of uh, <laughs> common sense is needed. Gotcha. Uh, yes, you know, bad news um, sells, <laughs> and, yeah. it, and it also uh, brings in grant grant funds. And so uh, everything that happens seems to be uh, tied in one way or another to to climate change. Uh, just to put a positive spin on this, Jimmy, uh, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the last 100 years, mm. you know, the Earth's population has doubled and doubled again. And yet in a century, the world average annual temperature has gone up one degree Fahrenheit. I find that amazing. It shows that there's a strength and in uh, an integrity built into our uh, atmosphere to mm-hmm. handle population and to handle the kind of pressures we put on it. And as you said, not that we abuse the place or turn our back on creation. We've got the best reason for caring for it, but it is still in many ways a very healthy and created system. It sure is. And we know that when God created it, it's a magnificent place where we live but when you look at it compared to the solar system, how insignificant we really are. Well, that's true. In our own solar system, we have eight or nine planets. You know, we're the third one, and we're kind of an average-sized planet. But the closer we look, we see how everything has been set up for us, even the constants of nature mm. are well designed for our, um, you know, for our survival and well-being. And you know what astronomers are saying these days, Jimmy? They're saying, where is everyone? If evolution works, it should have popped up everywhere. And of right. course, this is the only place we find it in abundance. Yes, yes, uh, so true. Well, when we, when we this program talks about Bible prophecy, we're looking 
looking at future events according to God's word. I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about that uh, the millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year rule and reign where Jesus Christ will be seated on his throne in the city of Jerusalem, uh, ruling from there. That's when he receives his earthly kingdom. And we will be back in our glorified bodies. This is after the rapture. This is not the new heaven and earth and the future. This is we will be using the same earth. And Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, he talks about the regeneration in the future. And I believe that term is in the Greek, paleogenesia, like the Garden of Eden again, or like Genesis again. Do you have any idea, and, and if I'm off base, you can correct me, but do you have any idea about what our earth will look like in that millennial kingdom? Well, that's a good question, Jimmy. And You know, we are so embedded in our current world mm. system with mm-hmm. all of its faults and temporariness that it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. And I think uh, it's that, that way on purpose because it's something to look, look forward mm. to. Mm. But the millennial period, uh, my goodness, uh, uh, thinking about the climate change and the weather, uh, scripture does say that um, summer and winter will always continue. We'll have seasons, but the weather will be ideal. Mm. Uh, uh, the book of Ezekiel talks about showers of blessing. So um, things are just going to be in a, uh, a, a pure and a, uh, inviting state. Of course, we will have um, the Lord in control. So we won't have uh, governments uh, going after each other's throats like right. it is today. Exactly. Uh, uh, so it'll, it'll just be a, an ideal time in so many ways. Yeah, regeneration. And, uh, of course, down the line, it's, God's going to make all things new. So there's better times ahead. Kind of restoring back to, you know, the ideal Garden of Eden situation, mm. the way life was meant to be at the start. Right. And I like what you said. It gives us something to look forward to because we can't we can't even begin to conceptualize in our brains what it's going to look like. But they will still use, I mean, us with our glorified bodies, we'll be able to travel. But people that go in through the tribulation period that have accepted Christ as their personal savior, they will be ushered into the, they have their earthly bodies. They still need to travel and it will probably be with the same mode of transportation today. Correct. I think uh, you're correct, Jimmy. You know, when the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, mm. he was without sin, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, you know, he, he did not glow. He did. He, <laughs> to a lot of people, he seemed like a very normal, normal person. guy. <laughs> so we, we went, don't want to overdo the what, the, what it'll be like. But uh, I think, you know, his example just shows um, yeah. that uh, life without sin is ideal and fits in in, in every way. Yeah. Um, certainly, there there will be there will be travel. I'm not sure just what transportation will sure. be during yeah. the millennium, whether it's advanced from today or not. But uh, yes, there will be um, travels. Uh, there will still be um, careers. There'll be interests and talents and music and, you know, all the above. Now, I do have a question for you, and I know that this seems sort of ridiculous, you know, um, but uh Believe it or not, we get questions from people about animals in the future. And if we think back to Adam and him walking in the garden with Eve and talking to the animals, will animals be play a role in the future? And will you know will we have a different relationship with them? 
Oh, I think um, uh, what you're saying is entirely correct, uh, that uh, they are part of the future. And, uh, you know, animals have much uh, to to teach us. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea today that uh, animals have this built-in fear of us, that's not ideal. That's Mm. not the normal situation. That's abnormal because of uh, sin has come. Yes, sir. So uh, when that changes... um, uh, yes, we are certainly not animals. We're on a different <laughs> level, and we are to steward and care for that world. But um, there could certainly be a lot more uh, uh, connection with with the animal world. And, you know, looking way ahead to the future new heavens and new earth, where it says the Lord will make all things new. Mm-hmm. We might even have a return of uh, some of the uh, animals almost mythical in our mind, like the dinosaur world. Wow. If they were part of the original creation, they have a part in the future. I look forward to that. Wow. Wow. And I, I'm so, I, I have a thousand questions I want to ask you, and I know that folks will, they will send in questions to us. And, and uh, I, I can't wait till the next time I can pick your brain about the new heaven and new earth. We get a description of that, and I, we're going to save that conversation for then. Dr. Don DeYoung, he's got books. Uh, again, Dr. DeYoung, tell us where we can go to get your books. Oh, well, I enjoy uh, writing in the area of Bible and science, and I do have uh, books on astronomy and on the weather mm. and uh, some other areas as well. And uh, most of those you can find on Amazon, either paper copies or uh, electronic versions. So that's probably an easy way for books these days, okay. Amazon. Just Google Dr. Don DeYoung, the same last name as us. No no relationship, as my dad used to say. We're so thankful for you being with us today to help us to some, some clarity. I think a lot of this, we some of us already know as far as climate change and what the world system is coming into place to, to force to happen. But we do thank you for giving us a little bit more clarity and about the future, and hopefully that we'll do that. Uh, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Dr. DeYoung, and, and thanks a lot for joining with us today. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Till next time. Creation physicist, Dr. Don DeYoung. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series, Alpha and Omega, where Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, has been teaching in the book of Genesis, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, we've been looking at the current events. We've been examining them in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, our resources on our website, there are many there. Can you give our folks where they can go and and what's available to them? We have our audio uh, podcast and different uh, things that we put together there for for you to listen to. But we also have a bookstore, and it's got many products and materials that we have put together. You and I had a hand in doing it, some of them with our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Uh, One of the the good ones that kind of relates to what we're talking about today is his Return to Eden series— where we talk about the Garden of Eden. So it's it's a really great place for you to go check back on a regular basis, and we'll keep you informed. Like we say, we like to keep you informed on current events and how they relate to God's prophetic word. Yeah, there are so many resources there at our bookstore. And again, this helps support our ministry. Uh, we also will have information there concerning um, our prophecy conferences of where we go when we're teaching God's Word and our trips to Israel. Like you said, you know, there are many DVDs and books, 
that are there that you could take a look at, specifically one referring to the return to Eden, where we feel the Garden of Eden is located. And as we are returning to our legacy series this week, last week we said that we would continue our study of the relationship between creation and the kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule over in the future. Remember, the kingdom is yet to be set up, and in just a moment, we'll go through a discussion of the events that lead up to the kingdom events that are foretold in the book of Revelation. We also will focus on the Garden of Eden and the significance of this sacred place in the future. You know, we actually know where the Garden of Eden is located today. We will study that in just a moment, but first let's consider the connection between creation and the kingdom to come. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1 as Dr. Jimmy D. Young in the Legacy Series continues on talking about that kingdom that first appeared in Genesis and will reappear in the book of Revelation at the end of time. Creation and the kingdom, what happened in creation set the pattern for the kingdom to come. The fact is that Adam and Eve were given rulership, dominion. They were to lead the kingdom at the time of creation. That was the pattern, and indeed that will be replicated in the kingdom that Jesus Christ will set up with his bride. Adam and Eve, Jesus and his bride in the kingdom to come. We talked about the place. We talked about the Garden of Eden. That's where the original kingdom was set up. That's where the final kingdom will be set up and be the location throughout eternity future. And so we got to that point and we realized what was going to be taking place prior to that kingdom being set up. Talking about the rapture of the church, the appearance of the Antichrist, the alignment of the nations, the abomination of desolation with the temple in Jerusalem, the aggressiveness of the angels, the angelic war in the heavenlies, and Armageddon. And all of those things preceding Jesus Christ coming back to the earth when he indeed will set up the kingdom. And the only time Jesus Christ will be king when he sets up that kingdom, when God his father gives him that kingdom. I talked about the place again, remember, and that was the Garden of Eden. I'd like to expand a bit more about the Garden of Eden, but show you how the Garden of Eden now plays in to what we see unfolding in our world today. Go with me, if you will, to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And let's look together, if you will, with me at the inauguration of the Garden of Eden. I remind you that it takes place... On the third day of creation, and let me just set up, when Jesus shouts, the trump of God sounds, the archangel shouts, we go to be with him in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Watch my eyes, please. That was a blink. It's faster than that. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up to be with him. The rapture of the church, the next main event in God's calendar of activities. We're someplace just prior to the rapture of the church. May I say this to you, there's not one prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Out of the 1,500 end-time prophecies, all of them have been fulfilled that need to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Every prophecy I talk about and deal with has to be fulfilled after the rapture of the church. When the rapture takes place, when the body of Christ leaves here to go to the heavenlies, that initiates the fulfillment of rest of the prophecies that must be fulfilled according to God's word. Then there's a seven-year period of time. There are 16 chapters that detail what's going to happen during that period of time. Chapters 4 of Revelation through 19. 
Those 16 chapters give all the details of what's going to happen in this seven-year tribulation period. There's additional information in the 17 Old Testament prophetic books and other passages of Scripture throughout the entire Word of God. But those 16 chapters deal with this seven-year period of time. Chapter 19 reveals that Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. Chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah says in verse 2, All the nations of the world gather at Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet will use signs, wonders, and miracles. And do we not have a proliferation of those today, the most intense that we've ever seen in the history of the world? They will use signs, wonders, and miracles to gather all these armies of the world into the city of Jerusalem. They're there to meet Jesus and try to keep him from coming back and establishing his kingdom. That's why there's a perversion of the kingdom today. They know what he's going to do. They know what's going to happen. They know the theocracy will be reinstituted and their Satanocracy will come to an end. This is the 19th chapter when Jesus comes back. This is chapter 20 verses 1 to 6. A thousand year period of time. Satan is bound for a thousand years. We rule and reign with Christ for a thousand year period of time. At the end of that, Satan is loose, captured again by God. Then the great white throne judgment, at which time Jesus is the judge, sentencing those who rejected him into the lake of fire. And after that, eternity future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. And so this is how eschatological events are going to unfold chronologically as we approach a study of that. But again, I must tell you what we see about to happen, basically is a result of what took place on the third day of creation when God inaugurated the Garden of Eden. Go to chapter 1 and verse 9. Let me show you this. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he sea. And God saw that it was good. Now, I believe, in fact, when this did happen, God brought all of the land together in one large mass. Earth was one large mass floating in the water. And there earth was set as a large mass in what is the seas or the oceans. By the way, I believe there's an interesting text over in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. In verse 25, it says, And in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. I believe that's not talking about the division of the peoples across the world. I believe it's literally talking about Eretz, land, the earth in Hebrew. It was divided. Uh, There are some scholars that disagree with that. There are a number of scholars that would agree with me. That is the day when the earth was divided. You look at the earth from a logical perspective, you can look at the shoreline of most of the continents. They look like puzzle parts that would fit in with the shoreline of the continent next to it on either side of it, in front of it, and below it. And so I believe it was at that time. That would give a great explanation as to how Indians, for example, if you want to refer to the original natives of the North American continent got here, is after the flood, they made their way to that section. And when the earth was divided, they were left there. They were already here. 
There was no way to get from there across the oceans and ultimately get to North America. So I believe that is the case. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. You can uh, say it's not correct. If you want to be wrong, that's all right with me. I don't care. But uh, indeed, it's a great explanation as to how things did come about. And so he formed the earth. Now, in the center of the earth, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5 and verse 5, notice uh, most of the time I hardly ever give an opinion. I'm simply giving you the word of God and is how we understand the word of God. But I can tell you this in Ezekiel 5, 5, God said, I put the city of Jerusalem in the middle of the earth and all the nations around her. And so in Jerusalem, he's going to establish the middle of the earth. And that's where he is going to put the Garden of Eden. And that's what happens here on this third day of creation. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit trees yielding fruit. Remember, he creates with age after his kind. Uh, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. This is the inauguration of the Garden of Eden on the third day of creation. When you look at the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, it's key you remember what is the subject of each of the chapters. Chapter 1 is creation. Chapter 2, the special effects are additional information about creation. Chapter 3, the fall of man. Chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 is the genealogy. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Chapter 10 is another genealogy. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And chapter 12, call of Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. And that's 2,000 years of human history. And so I just said, chapter 2 gives us additional information. Let's look at more additional information about the Garden of Eden. Go to chapter 2 with me, if you will, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden afterward. The word in my King James Bible is eastward. And the Hebrew word is gadim. Gadim basically means aforetime, before. If you're going to put a direction down, you've got to have a source from which that direction is recognized. He planted a garden of Eden. This is the third day of creation. Eastward of what? And so it's, I think the tr proper translation here is the Lord God planted a garden before in Eden. And there he put the man who he had formed and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we see that there is a garden and it's going to be the location where God is now going to bring man into existence. By the way, let me show you something. All of this life, this plant life that's there in the Garden of Eden needs to be watered. And so God establishes a river in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to notice in verse 10, there's only one river in the Garden of Eden. Many times people want to debate me about where the Garden of Eden is. And they say, well, what about the Tigris and the Euphrates River? Well, what about the Tigris and the Euphrates River? They're mentioned here in the passage, but they're not mentioned as being in the Garden of Eden. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. And a river, that's one, that's singular, uno. A river went out of Eden to water the garden. 
And from thence it was parted, someplace outside, from thence, outside somewhere. And it became four heads, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon. And so those are the four rivers outside, but there's only one river in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you'll stop and think about it, you know which garden that was. It wasn't the Tigris and the Euphrates. I always tell people when they say, what about the Tigris and the Euphrates? I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Where was the Tigris and the Euphrates prior to the flood? Do you not remember that the flood, the water covered the entire earth, the highest mountain by 15 feet? It was a worldwide flood. The topography of the earth was changed. Just remind me, where was the Tigris and the Euphrates before the flood? Nobody seems to know. I don't know. Bible doesn't say. Oh, it said what direction it was going in, but it doesn't say exactly where it was. It may have been in the same place. I do not know. Or it may be in a different location. But it wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Only one river was there. Where's the Pishon? I have no idea where the Pishon River is. I do know where the Gihon is. Indeed, there is only one river in the city of Jerusalem, and it's been there since the third day of creation. This fact is key to understanding why Jesus Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem during the kingdom period and into eternity future. The place where the kingdom will be set up is the Garden of Eden in Jerusalem. By the way, every Orthodox Jewish scholar believes that the foundation stone underneath that Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is where God created Adam and Eve. And that was, of course, the Garden of Eden, located there 6,000 years ago, as well as today. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Well, we have to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book with my friend Tom Meyer, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Since 2018, Turkey has forced nearly 200 Protestant clergy and their families to leave the country. Intelligence officials claim they pose a security risk, but don't say how. Zonar Tufan works with the Association of Protestant Churches in Turkey. He says this pattern has developed due to distrust and hatred of Christians in Turkey. However, he's hoping to plant more churches with the help of Asian access. Ask God to protect believers in Turkey. And China and Hong Kong are seeing the largest spike of COVID cases since 2019, despite having severe lockdown and prevention policies. Earlier this week, China locked down an industrial city of 9 million after 47 new cases were reported. Frustration abounds on Chinese social media platforms as government censors failed to keep up. If ever the Chinese people needed a reason to hope, it's now. Pray the Bibles and Christian materials sent to China from Mission Cry can be distributed quickly to believers. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we have been examining for the last hour and a half current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I really appreciate all the work that you've done. And all of these are stories. The events that we are looking at are really pointing to passages that we see in the Word of God. That's true, Jimmy. That's the way God speaks to us today, by looking at His Scriptures. And that's what we do here, and that's what we love to do, and that's what our passion is, is looking at Scripture and showing how it is important to our life right now. Well, Rick, as we take a look at the book, and as we did last week, and we talked to Steve Herzig with Friends of Israel, we've always looked at what's taking place and how it relates to Bible prophecy. But this week, something really caught my eye, and I know that I've got an expert on the subject, but let me first of all give you the name of the article and what it said. Archaeologist claims to find oldest Hebrew text in Israel, including the name of God. So I was thinking, man, I got to get to Tom Meyer about this. Tom, welcome to the program again today. Thank you, Jimmy. Well, let's talk about this, Tom. Um, what's the importance of this article that D- the Jerusalem Post put this out there? And tell us what, what, what has happened so far. Well, uh, this is a big deal. The title of the article reads, Scholars Date Tiny Cursed Tablet Found at Mount Abal to 1200 BC, which would prove Israelites were literate when they entered the Holy Land. That's the article. Well, when you and I read that, because we're maximalists and not minimalists, (laughs) we would say, of course, the Israelites were literate. Right. Of course, they entered into the Holy Land. You know, these kind of finds that we hear about to the world, they seem like a big deal. And to a certain degree, they are to us because they confirm what we already know to be true. Right. And that the word of God is inspired and infallible and inerrant. So sure, we're glad we find these things that help us to have some ammunition in regards to apologetics, et cetera. But you know as well as I do and everyone else listening that we don't need these finds to prove that the Word of God is true. But this is a really cool thing. This dates to around 1200 B.C. And what it is, Jimmy, it's tiny, man. It's just like two centimeters by two centimeters. That's how big this thing is. It's this. It's like no bigger than like a quarter Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's made out of uh, a lead, and it's folded, Jimmy, like a little book. And they found it on Mount Aval. Now, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, that sounds familiar, Mount Aval. And it, and it should, because when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River at about 1400 B.C., the, they set up great stones and built an altar on Mount Aval. And the Word of God tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And remember, Jimmy, how six tribes were on Mount Gerizim to bless the people? Yeah, And then yes. six tribes, right, were on Mount Aval to curse the people. And in between those two cities right there is biblical Shechem. It's, mm. wow, I mean, this is like a, a huge deal. So to make a long story short, what happened is way back in the 1980s, archaeologists were digging on top of Mount Aval at a thing that they thought, even though there's debate, but they thought that was the actual altar from the book of Joshua in chapter 8, verse 33. But like I said, there's debate about that, whether that is the altar of Joshua or not. But anyways, archaeologists were digging there in the 80s, and and they they took the dirt from inside of this structure, which is, is it a house, is it an altar, is it a watchtower, what is it? But nevertheless, they took the dirt out, and they set it on the side. 
Okay. Well, that dirt sat there for 40 years <laughs> until the technology came along called wet sifting. So just recently, the archaeologists went through that dirt that came from that structure and wet sifting, as some of the audience might know, is it's like you take this this high pressure water and like a power wash and you power wash your car, or your, you know, the siding of your house. And what it does is high pressure is it, it just knocks all the dirt and gunk off things that would have been passed over by the naked eye. Mm. And they found a small artifact. This is what they use in the Temple Mount sifting process, which mm -hmm. you know about. Yep. And so when they did this, they went through the stuff, they found these clumps of earth that just were, you know, gone over by the naked eye. And when they blew off the junk, they found the curse, so-called curse tablet. And this tablet, if you, uh, uh, has 40 letters on the outside, 40 letters on the inside. It's a little tiny book. Like I said, it could have been like a, a talesman or like a charm that people would wear on their neck. Like later, we found the famous silver scrolls from the time of Hezekiah wow. in 700 BC. And that has the oldest Bible verses in the history of the world on them from the book of Numbers, the Aaronic Blessing. And that also was a, a like a talesman or an amulet people would wear, uh, uh, like we wear crosses today and things mm -hmm. like that. But this little book, they, they, they were able through this, this high ability to scan it, they were able to determine that there was writing on it, 40 letters on the inside, 40 letters on the outside, and this type of writing that was used is a big fancy name for it, called proto-alphabetic script, which means it dates to around 1200 BC. And sure enough, what's written on there, the English translation of it, the word curse appears 10 times on this little charm that you would wear around your neck, but more importantly, the name Yahweh, Jimmy. Mm. Yahweh appears two times on this. Pretty cool. Tom, this is so very important. And like you said, you know, this is just extracurricular for those of us that uh, have taken by faith the Word of God and the stories of the Old Testament. But how can we practically use that in our life today? Well, exactly. Well, on the one hand, look, it just confirms what we already know to be true, mm -hmm. that the Israelites were in the land at 1200 BC. They were in the land in 1400 BC because that's just what the simple chronology of the Bible lays out for us, number one. And number two, that God was their God. Yahweh was their God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those people at that time served the same God that we do today, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So once again, these kind of finds to us, you know, they're important, yeah, but they're not make or break. What they do is over and over again show us that the Word of God is the Word of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, and it can be trusted and it can be applied into every asset of our life. Amen. Wow, Tom. Tom Meyer, thank you so much. The Bible Memory Man. Uh, archaeology is an evolving science, but when you do find it, it confirms what we already know. Tom, thanks for sharing with us today how important it is, uh, these finds, and how relevant God's Word is from the past, how relevant it is today and for the future. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you again soon. Adventure is out there. Rick, I love those three criteria that we use when we're determining a site, the authenticity of a site in Israel. And when the Bible does come and confirms archaeology, it helps us to understand that we are... Uh, with this book that we look at for historical uh, perspective will also give us a perspective on the future. Thank you for joining with us, Rick, today, and I look forward to joining with you again next week. 
As always, my pleasure, Jimmy, to join you and the listeners today to talk about these issues. You know, it's so very important to examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It's a comfort to us, and uh, it's, it's exciting to be able to do it with you and the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.